Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Kevin Conroy. Kevin is the chairman and CEO of Madison, Wisconsin-based Exact Sciences. Exact has grown over the past decade into a success story for cancer screening and diagnosis. It's best known for marketing the non-invasive Cologuard test that screens people for colorectal cancer. It also markets the Oncotype DX test that's used to predict the likelihood that a patient with breast cancer will have a recurrence and whether a preventive round of chemotherapy is likely to be beneficial or not. Further back in the pipeline, Exact is developing a blood-based screening test that it hopes will be able to detect early signs of many, many types of cancer that aren't routinely detected until the disease has already caused a lot of damage and may no longer be treatable. The Cologuard test already has been run more than 12 million times. That still represents a fairly small portion of the total addressable market for colorectal cancer screening. And Exact recently came out with clinical data for a new version of Cologuard that reduced false positive rates by about 30%. That result from the Blue Sea study may help persuade some physicians who have been slow to adopt the first generation test on the grounds that it sets off a few too many false alarm bells. Kevin has a fascinating personal story, starting with the environment where he grew up, Flint, Michigan. He joined Exact Sciences as CEO in 2009 when the company was on the ropes. Kevin and his colleagues set some audacious goals, persevered against the odds, and built a company that now has a market value of more than $16 billion. In this conversation, he shares this company's story along with some of his insights into building a company in the upper Midwest, the importance of partnerships, and where cancer screening and diagnosis is heading. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, scientist.com. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. And it's summertime, which means I'm in recruiting mode for my next big biotech team expedition. The Timmerman Traverse for Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation is scheduled for February 7 to 18, 2024. I'll be leading a team of biotech executives and investors on a hike to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. At 19,340 feet, it's the highest peak in Africa. Some amazing people are already confirmed on the team, and I'll be filling up the roster with a diverse cast of characters. If you are up for this trip of a lifetime and willing to work hard to be part of a team raising $1 million to support brilliant young cancer researchers all over the U.S., then send me a note, luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, please join me and Kevin Conroy on The Long Run. Kevin Conroy, welcome to The Long Run. Hey, Luke, it's really great to be with you and to have this conversation. Yes, yes, I've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, so, Kevin, first off, I have to start um, a little known fact about you. Uh, people think you're a badger because you're based in Madison and very Wisconsin proud like me, but uh, you're actually a Spartan. Is that right? That's exactly right. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, and uh, had the good sense to marry a Wisconsin girl, Sheila Brennan, now Sheila Conroy. And uh, we've been here for the last 20 years, uh, 21 years. It's a great, great state to live in. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll forgive you the part about being a Spartan because we, we both dislike Michigan, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, I uh, as a Spartan, there is a firm, uh, we won't call it hatred, we'll say dislike for Michigan. <laughs> the, the truth, though, Luke, is I uh, graduated from University of Michigan's law school. I met my wife there, and uh, it's a, a very special institution, even though I 
cannot stand their football or basketball teams. It's just <laughs> part of the DNA, as you know. You're walking a fine line there, Kevin. I uh, appreciate that. Okay, so uh, can we just ask, can I ask you just a little bit about uh, your background? You said you grew up in Flint. Um, what was that like? Well, when I grew up in Flint, it was a, a bustling automotive town. Uh, there were 500,000 people in the county and 80,000 of them worked for General Motors. My grandfather worked in the Buick paint pit for 40 years. Really, truly an amazing uh, city. Uh, at one time, it had the highest per capita income of any city its size in the country uh, because everybody was employed and everybody had um, you know, uh, a good income uh, coming from the auto industry that resulted in one of the best public school systems in the country, believe it or not. And um, the they persistently scored in the top 10 percentile in the Iowa basics, third and sixth grade math and reading. And probably without growing up in Flint, I wouldn't have excelled uh, academically and I wouldn't have, maybe I didn't really excel academically, do better than average. And growing up in Flint where there was a huge amount of equality in terms, nobody really cared what your, what you did what your parents did, what kind of car you drove, any of that. It was more about what you could do. It was very competitive athletically. So, you know, you had an unlimited number of sports to play. And, you know, there's a certain amount of grit that came uh, from just growing up in Flint. I, it's, it's, I'm deeply appreciative of my hometown. This probably surprises a lot of people when they hear this because when we say flint today people think of other things like the what happened after the decline of the automotive industry and then the um the water crisis you know it's a it's an inspirational uh story of flint it's also a tragic story i keep uh on my desk uh at work the story of billy durant and of course very few people know the story of Billy Durant, but he was the founder of General Motors. And before that, he had built the largest carriage company uh, in the world. And you'd be uh, happy to know he sold his first carriage in Wisconsin after buying um, a patent that covered a, a carriage that had this kind of spring system to make it really comfortable to ride. And um, an amazing guy, he built Buick, uh, Chevrolet, Frigidaire became the first, you know, essentially not the inventor of the refrigerator, but the the person who brought it to the masses. And and the list goes on, of course, of all the the businesses. Um and so that's kind of he he built Flint and he he made it what it became. And then the the tragedy of the loss of all of those jobs accelerated by NAFTA and uh other larger uh forces. Um so it's always been a, an inspirational story for me, but also a watch out that you can never take your eye off the ball in terms of quality and competitiveness. Really interesting. So um, you said you had good schools. Um, did you get hooked on science early on? Yeah, I did. There was a, a program that I went to once a week in uh, the um for kids who are interested in math and science, you'd go to an elementary school near downtown Flint, right next to what was called the Flint Cultural Center. And they had a, a science museum and an art institute and a, a library and a planetarium. And you could write program. Now, this would have been in the 70s. You could write, um, you know, basic Fortran uh, programs and have them run by a mainframe that was um owned by the Flint Public Schools. I mean, there are so many opportunities. The planetarium was amazing. And, you know, I think that piqued my interest in science. The Science Museum had this model of a, a translucent model of a human being um, called Tammy. And, you know, it showed, I still remember this. I wonder if there's a connection, the uh, intestines. You could, you're like, oh my God, look at how how big that intestinal tract is. 
So that's so cool that those resources were there for a curious young kid to explore. I mean, you know, I live in Seattle and we often tell these fabled stories about, you know, Bill Gates and Paul Allen and the, the Seattle World's Fair and the building of the Space Needle and all this gee whiz Jetsons kind of stuff that was happening in the 60s and how that fired their imagination. I think that these kind of uh, public uh, festivals and resources and investments that that come at either public schools, public universities, um, they play a really important role in in shaping who um, who we become. Um, you know who else grew up in the Flint area was Kim Popovitz, who was the CEO of Genomic Health when our two companies came together. I did not know that. Yeah, and Kim is really an amazing person, and and she. Um, help uh, donate a, a, a whole new room to the new science museum on that same campus in downtown Flint. Really an amazing person. Fascinating. Well, we'll get to genomic health in, later on, but I want to ask you, uh, you train as a lawyer uh, and uh, how did you end up getting involved in life sciences? Probably accidentally more than any, anything else. I, was in private practice for about a decade. And then I was uh, general counsel of a couple of startups in the Bay Area during the boom of the internet. Um, took a job with GE Healthcare, which got me into the medical device world. And I really loved my experience at GE. Uh, eventually I got a call from a company that was looking for a general counsel in Madison, Wisconsin. At the time, I, we lived in Milwaukee, and that that company was called Third Wave Technologies. It had a technology that was an alternative to PCR, um, a lower error rate than PCR. It, it called signal amplification technology, and they were transitioning from a tools company to a clinical diagnostics company. And I took that job as general counsel. Eventually, became CEO and. You know, we were that that moved me into life sciences, and I haven't looked back since. What was it that really fascinated you about this industry? I think it was the it was the human genome project was just wrapping up, and there seemed to be an unlimited possibility for the impact on medicine and healthcare. The knowledge of the human genome and the impact on how patients would be treated was something we talked a lot about at GE. GE had just acquired uh, Amersham. So that was kind of my first introduction to all the possibilities. And in, in studying why GE was making that acquisition, uh, it led me to thinking about, wow, maybe this would be an opportunity. Although I was an electrical engineering undergraduate, I did all of my electives in uh, biology, chemistry, organic chemistry, um, thinking that someday I would go into medicine or innovation around medicine. And it kind of worked out that way. And so you went in-house at Third Wave, and that was a successful outcome. It, it was acquired. Um, what did you do next? It, you know, I was just talking with somebody today on the team. The third wave uh, story, it wasn't uh, an, an inevitable uh, positive outcome because when I first became CEO, company was working on developing 13 different uh, tests. And I'm still not sure why the board of directors asked me to be CEO. I, up until that point, I had managed one person before, and that person was a paralegal. Um, but we, as a team, we came together and said, let's put all of our wood behind one arrow, that arrow being developing a cervical cancer screening test based on the HPV virus. And Genprobe and Roche were ahead of us. Digene had already launched a test. And... Um, we beat Roche and Genprobe to market by two to three years each, even though they were two to three years ahead of us. And I'll never forget that team of scientists and the the team that ran the, the large clinical trial, how focused and intent they were. 
it was the success of that program that led Hologic to acquire Third Wave. And um, I... How old were you when you got tapped to be the CEO of Third Wave? I was, I don't know, maybe 41, 42 years old. Okay, so you had pretty good seasoning on the legal side of the house, but, um, uh, you know, you, you said you weren't... Did, did you feel like you were being thrown into the deep end of the pool and maybe not ready? Oh, I was thrown into the deep end of the pool, probably with weights. The com company was running out of money. Stock was falling like a rock. A month after I joined as CEO, we announced that we missed guidance, the guidance that uh, the company had previously given by 40% for the full year. It wasn't the deep end. It was like the deep end without any water. Uh, and uh, there were rocks at the bottom of the pool. I mean, it was um, a, a difficult situation. And, and that situation is what probably informed the way that I think about leadership more than any other experience. Well, you, you said there were 13 different products. Was that one of your thoughts early on that, Hey, maybe we're spread too thin and we need to focus on just one or two things and do and hit it out of the park. I had had this wonderful mentor and board member named Jim Connolly, who said, he always said, Kevin, you know, if you have th more than three priorities, you really have none. And Jim was uh, so instrumental in having the board support the idea that we would stop all of those other clinical trial programs, all of those uh, tests that were in development and focus on one that really mattered. Now, was that a hard decision to make? Because there had to be people at the company that believed in each and every one of these things and had spent time working on them. It, it was a hard decision. It was made easier by the fact that we, we were running out of money. And it was also made easier by the fact that you had a team of scientists who were totally committed to success. So quickly they bought into this more limited focused approach, especially because we were very open about where we stood as a company and that there was no guarantee of success that the team would determine whether the company survived or not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you just came clean with them and said, Hey, this is what we have to do. Um, we got to like, rip the bandaid off. <laughs> that's, uh, that's exactly right. And the, and the team then coalesced, there was a real great camaraderie, and every Friday, I would do a, write an email to the whole team talking about the progress under those three priorities, never mentioning an individual, only talking about team progress. And slowly but surely, in that first year, we achieved each of the three priorities we laid out. That gave the team the kind of confidence that you need to then press forward because at times eventually got challenging. And ultimately, uh, we the clinical trial um, was successful and, um, you know, it ended up having a good home within Hologic. And many of those people are leaders within Hologic today. And really then interesting scientists are working with exact sciences today. So it's it was, it's really a good ending to a difficult story. So I'm glad that you did not tell this as a tidy success narrative with that went up in a straight line, because that's often just not how it happens. Uh, you, you had to make some hard choices, slim things down, turn this into like a little, you know, cruise missile <laughs> and, and you caught up and, and, and then um, had your success with that cervical cancer test and sailed the whole logic. OK, so you, you learn a lot from this experience. Uh, you you uh, uh, went through the trenches with a lot of these people. Uh, and then, um, I, I know some things m may have happened in the interim, but I want to get to exact sciences. Uh, can you describe the situation that you encountered with this little company that nobody had ever heard of at that time? Yeah, I was, how do you call it? In between opportunities, uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do, working from my home office, uh, just had gotten back from JP Morgan, where I was looking, I don't know, I probably looked at a dozen different companies that I thought I could 
um, help get off the ground. And I got a call from a recruiter about the CEO role of exact sciences. And I knew exact sciences because it was in our space. And I knew that it was trading below a dollar a share. And they had laid off virtually everybody at the company because the pivotal clinical trial had failed. So my initial inclination was, well, I wonder why they're even trying to continue. And it was that curiosity that made, led me, it, curiosity coupled with the fact that I didn't have anything better to do, that I went out and had dinner with Ed Kenya, uh, who is a, a partner at Flagship and was on the board of Exact. So Exact was um, uh, founded by Stan Lapidus, um, Ed Kenya at Flagship, uh, gave him um, invested 250000 just to explore this idea of non-invasive colon cancer screening uh, in 1995. And here it was early 2009. And I went out and met with Ed and um, Sally Crawford, who was on the board. There was no company. There was no R&D. And I got back from that meeting and said, you know, Ed, Sally, it was I had a, a I really enjoyed dinner. But I can't take this. There's, it doesn't appear that this is scientifically possible. But what what gave you what gave you confidence? What what uh, what did they say? Well, Ed is really amazing guy. That he his he's a force of nature, and he did not want to give up on this. He also kept as a board member. He was stayed apprised of all the research that was going on in the field. And he said, Kevin, before you say no, would you go meet with Dr. David Alquist at the Mayo Clinic, who's been doing research in this field along alongside, but not with exact sciences for over a decade? And uh, I said, sure. So I, I drove to the Mayo Clinic with Manish Aurora, who um, I had worked with at, at Third Wave, P2, was between opportunities. And we met with Dave Alquist, and Dave showed us data, data that indicated um, that with DNA methylation markers, you could detect over 90% of colon cancers from a stool sample. That data and just Dave was, he, he passed away um, uh, tragically from ALS, uh, three years ago, two and a half years ago. And he was a force of nature. He started that conversation as a gastroenterologist who had treated hundreds, if not thousands of patients with colon cancer. So he was at the Mayo Clinic. He said you can detect 90% of colon cancers based on the methylation signatures you find in stool. And why was that important in his mind and, and, and yours. So he defined the problem as number one, 50,000 people a year in the U S die from colon cancer is the number two cancer killer. He also said, look, it's totally preventable. If you find it at the precancer stage and remove that precancer, he said, that's where the big impact comes from. And you can, um, it's, very, very treatable if di diagnosed stage one, two, even in many cases, stage three. And so he said, look, we, the world needs a test that is non-invasive. He called it patient-friendly, no dietary restrictions, and you can do it in the privacy of your own home. He wrote out this formula on the whiteboard, which was S or no, E equals S times C times A effectiveness of a screening test equals the sensitivity of the test, what percentage of cancers it can detect, compliance, what percentage of people will comply with the test that a doctor recommends they take, and access in a broad population, geographically, financially, who can afford and access that test. And so he kind of, that was his construct that he made the case for non-invasive screening. He said, look, I'm, I do colonoscopies for a living and half of people will not get screening colonoscopies. That's the problem. That I, That's a really interesting formula. I've not heard it expressed quite that way, but colonoscopy, of course, had been around, still is, very, very accurate, but <laughs> it's expensive and people are reluctant. 
that it's a procedure and, and just not that many people are going to get it. So often when uh, people are diagnosed with colon cancer, it's uh, pretty late, pretty far gone. Hard to treat. That's that's exactly right. And Dave shared the stories of his patients who were, who were diagnosed with colon cancer, who appear to be perfectly healthy. And he explained, look, these patients weren't symptomatic until it was simply too late. Now, unfortunately, at that same time, three people that I grew up with, three friends from Flint were diagnosed with colon cancer. And then not too long after that, um, my cousin's wife, Jackie Maxud, was diagnosed with colon cancer, all in their 40s, all stage three or stage four. Only one of uh, those people who meant a lot to me is still alive today. Wow. And um, so when Dave was telling me this story, it was the first time in my adult life that friends of mine were diagnosed with cancer and it, they all happened to be diagnosed with colon cancer. So it was very personal and it caused me to have a greater degree of curiosity about the problem, the potential solution. Um, and then the what? parallel to developing a cervical cancer test screening test was remarkable because immediately we started brainstorming about the science, the deep science behind being able to detect cancer from a stool sample. Yeah, because um, cervical cancer, I mean, pap smears have been around for a long time as well, but uh, they don't have that 90% uh, sensitivity. That, and, and the point that you just made there like really resonated. So cervical cancer in the 1950s, up until the 1950s and 60s, was the number one cancer killer of women. And hardly anybody remembers that. It's the one cancer that has been nearly eradicated with the screening test, a test that is only maybe 50% sensitive for the, the precancers which is what the real target of cervical cancer is, these lesions that lead to cancer, and they can be simply ablated. So how, how in the world can a test that misses 50% of the problems be so effective? Well, these lesions can take 10 plus years to turn into stage one cancer, and the pap smear done annually over time detected most most of those cancers so if you keep doing this cheap and easy and accessible test on a regular basis you'll catch it in all go in all likelihood you'll catch it in time you got you you got this so you looked at what dave was presenting to you with uh uh an, uh, an optimistic view that gosh if you've got 90 percent sensitivity with a relatively you know uh, low cost uh easily accessible test and you could do this uh, regularly um you know annually um gosh that that might um catch a lot of these colon cancers early when they're highly treatable yeah i'll i'll never forget that meeting luke it was uh i'll we i the drive there in early march of 2009 was in a fierce snowstorm we drove past western you know through western wisconsin in not too far from where you grew up and it was i thought i wonder what will come out of this meeting well i got there and the alchemy with dave was was remarkable and the connection to cervical cancer screening and and then the science behind this um he was able to generate results showing 98% cancer detection 60% precancer detection and um and over 90% specificity with a technology that i think he kind of invented called di digital melt curve it would but now but, but wait a minute kevin you said earlier that exact sciences had had previously run a pivotal clinical trial and it failed was was dave presenting you a a, a new generation of technology that exact sciences had and was worth a shot totally and it okay. just shows that innovation isn't a straight line there. Um, so the early version of the exact sciences test back in the late 90s, early 2000s, 
was looking for DNA mutations mainly. And, you know, DNA breaks down in stool. Uh, so there is a preservation problem and then a mutation. They didn't know all of the mutations involved. So even if perfect in tissue, they were only looking at 80% of all cancers. Um, and DNA methylation is just a better marker class. And, and Dave had discovered and um, found in the literature some mar markers that had broader coverage at the tissue level. But it took a hundred micro titer plates to run a test for one patient. So it was brute force. It was brilliant. Um, Dave raised $10 million to fund that effort to get to the data that convinced uh, Manish Aurora and me uh, and later Graham Lidgard to join the company and to try to tackle this problem. Tired of spending hours searching for the exact research products and services you need? Scientist.com is here to help. Their award-winning digital platform makes it easy to find and purchase life science reagents, lab supplies, and custom research services from thousands of global laboratories. Scientist.com helps you outsource everything but the genius. Save time and money and focus on what really matters, your groundbreaking ideas. Learn more at scientist.com slash long run. And it's summertime, which means I'm in recruiting mode for my next big biotech team expedition. The Timmerman Traverse for Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation is scheduled for February 7 to 18, 2024. I'll be leading a team of biotech executives and investors on a hike to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, which at 19,340 feet is the highest peak in Africa. Some amazing people are already confirmed on the team, and I will be filling up the roster with a diverse cast of characters. If you are up for this trip of a lifetime and willing to work hard to be part of a team raising $1 million to support brilliant young cancer researchers all over the country, then send me a note. Luke at TimmermanReport.com. Okay, so you entered this scene. As you said, the company was trading below a dollar, um, low on cash, um, hardly any employees. You had to bring in your own team. And uh, you, one of those early things you did was you uh, moved the company from Cambridge to Madison, Wisconsin. Why did you do that? Well, we had been living in Madison at this point for two, three years and loved Madison. And we knew it would be a great place to raise children. And, and what I learned at Third Wave was that you get world-class scientists who will never give up the fight. If you if you in in Wisconsin, so many young people who grew up on farms had an interest in science. They go to University of Wisconsin Madison. They end up with a PhD in biochemistry, one of the top ten programs in the in the world. They want to do great things, and the work ethic and the kind of team spirit. When I think of all of those top scientists from third wave. Three or four of them are vice presidents or, or Jorge Garces, our chief science officer. So four of those leaders and many of the scientists working on our team, we've worked together for 18, 19 years. Yeah, they weren't going to they weren't going to job hop on you when things got hard. <laughs> uh, when they, they latched on to a really hard problem, they were going to work to see it through. You know, Luke, I went and knocked on the door of um, Mark Buer, who ran uh, at the time ran the University Research Park and said, hey, Mark, we need some office space. And he handed me a set of keys and he said, you can take the office down on the first floor, you know, room, whatever. And I said, do, do I need to sign a lease? And he said, oh, yeah, you can do that. But it's $700 a month and there's a 30 day out clause. So I'll, I'll drop a lease off tomorrow. But you can set up today. You're off to the races. We we then got a wet lab space in that same building. And then eventually they had an empty building that a company had exited. They they we leased the whole building. They charged us 25% of the rent because we were only taking up 25% of the space. And as we grew up the number of employees we had, they charged us um, you know, fractionally more each month. It, it was just an incredible relationship. And given our lack of cash, it was 
needed. And now we're the uh, probably the biggest tenant, well, for certain, the biggest tenant in the research park. You're really speaking to the importance of a supportive community. Uh, and Mark Buer, um, if memory serves, from my days in Wisconsin, I mean, didn't he serve in the Tommy Thompson's administration? Uh, so like this guy, when he was governor, I mean, this guy knew pretty much everybody around town and, and could and wanted to help you. He wanted to help us. I had a working relationship with him for my days at Third Wave, where we were also in the University Research Park. Um, it does speak to the importance of that ecosystem. And we've been the uh, grateful uh, beneficiaries of this Wisconsin, particularly Madison ecosystem. Really Wisconsin, because our automation comes from Wisconsin. Our, our The containers that go into our collection kit, Wisconsin. A lot of the ingredients, you know, you, you have Promega in town, um, a part of Danaher that's in town. All of these companies are now kind of part of our success story and, and help make this possible. So you decided to take this job. And did you already have that Mayo Clinic partnership in place or did you have to draw that up? We had a handshake agreement that we would work together on this effort. And because of that handshake agreement, that's why I joined the company. And that was in March of 2009. By June of 2009, we had this collaboration with Mayo Clinic. And the interesting thing about the collaboration is we agreed to fund the, the collaboration. There would be a team in Rochester at the Mayo Clinic that Dave would oversee as part of that. And we worked as one team. So regardless of who was on any particular patent, there would be a royalty. And if no patents came out of it, which wasn't the case, there would still be the same royalty. So it was this idea of a collaboration royalty rather than an intellectual property royalty. And I'm really proud that we just celebrated our 14th year of extending that collaboration agreement, and it expanded to 16 different types of cancer. And the intellectual property that has come out of that collaboration is, I think, going to help change how cancer is detected. Namely, it will help us detect cancer more accurately and much earlier. Wow, that's a testament to a really... Um successful partnership. Not many last 14 years or expand like that. Um, <laughs> okay. So that was a really important strategic move in the beginning when you got there. And th that gave you something to um, uh, of a story to tell investors, to restore some confidence, uh, put some money into this, uh, maybe get the stock price up. <laughs> uh, so the next big move that you made was the FDA CMS parallel review. Can you describe for people what that was and why that was important? Yes. So in our very first meeting with CMS, they said, look, you, you need a, a national coverage decision because it's a cancer screening test. You can't go the local route, which so many diagnostic companies go. You need a national coverage decision, and they're really hard to get. And we we want you to run a, a second study. So you're going to go run an FDA study. We want you to run a second study in the Medicare population. And that was 30 days into me taking the jam. And I thought to myself, well, we can barely afford uh, an FDA clinical study. How in the world are we going to then run a second one after that? And then how, what's going to keep us alive in the years between FDA approval and Medicare coverage? Because it would take, you know, let's say it would take three additional years. And I articulated this in the meeting and they said, well, you know, for years we wanted to do a parallel review. Would you be open to that? And without knowing what that truly meant, I said, absolutely, we're all in. Now, you were just you, you said you were early in planning your clinical development strategy. What what was this looking like to you in terms of time and budget to gather the evidence necessary to convince FDA, CMS and the medical community? 
I forget what how much we thought it would take. We thought it would take altogether about five years. How much money we way underestimated it at maybe thirty million dollars. It ended up being well north of a hundred million dollars. Wow. <laughs> and um if CMS, you know, came back and said, let's you can do this in parallel. You just need to power the study in the Medicare population so we can draw conclusions from those patients in the study. And we said, okay, well, that will increase the size and scope of the trial, but we can do that. And it we I don't think we would have been able to fund the study because it would have added three more years. So it would would have been eight years instead of five years. And I'm so grateful to the team at CMS that made the decision to press forward. And then also the team at FDA that agreed. But a lot of companies in this kind of um, precarious position would um, be understandably reluctant to take on such, I mean, it's already a high enough hurdle, as you say, I mean, to take on an even higher hurdle. Why did you decide to go along with this? Well, it's become a bedrock part of our culture, which is just do the right thing, do the right clinical trial. Uh, So generate what we call it the rock solid clinical evidence that will make adoption of the test eventually inevitable. And we didn't cut any corners in, in our original conversations with the FDA. They actually wanted us to run a smaller study as an initial study. And the back and forth conversation was unique in that we were asking for a much larger, more complicated, more costly study. And FDA was nudging us to something more practical. Fortunately, uh, we we eventually coalesced around the big study, and it was the only study that made true sense to us. Compare the performance of Cologuard to colonoscopy as a reference standard, and um, that's where we ended up. But there, you know, Luke, there was one step before that: is we needed. We had Dave from the Mayo Clinic, a renowned physician, Manish, an amazing finance, operations, strategic thinker, great leader, and and me, we didn't have a scientific team. And uh, we that's where we recruited Graham Lidgard, who probably has developed more FDA-cleared and approved tests than any product developer scientist in, in history. Graham is, uh, had been the head of GenProbe and developed their blood screening platform that won all types of uh, awards and presidential uh, medal of honor, um, all of um, those are a scientific award from the president. Graham lived in La Jolla, California and was, I don't know, probably close to 60 years old. And he moved to Madison, Wisconsin with his wife, Carol. At age 60 in October of 2009. <laughs> Had to buy himself a parka. <laughs> he did. Um, okay. So, so you had a great team. You, you, you built the comp, you, you first developed your own conviction around this. And then you, you know, you and, and Manish and Graham, you know, helped bring in others. Um, what were the, what was the big break with your clinical results by the time you, you got through phase three? What did those, results say? They said we detected 92% of cancers, 42% of precancers, 69% of the most advanced precancers, high-grade dysplasia, and we had a 13% false positive rate. Mm-hmm. So this was, it, we, we proved superiority to the only other non-invasive test called the FIT test. We compared in that study, every patient got a FIT test and the Colgard test, and we beat the FIT test hands down. The FIT test only detected 74% of all cancers, only 60% of stage one cancers versus Colgard, which detected 90% of stage one cancers. So the FIT is the fecal immunochemical test, and that's been around for some time, uh, cheap and accessible. Yes, it detects. Uh, blood in the stool. So if a patient is bleeding, um, which 
many, but not all patients with a tumor are bleeding and most precancers don't bleed. It's a cheap test that is also not accurate at detecting the very things you want to detect precancers and stage one cancer. So our mission was let's be superior to that. We were, we had a big panel meeting. We, we had unanimous uh, 10 0 votes on all three questions. It was incredible. It was, we were on a, a high and then we launched uh, Cologuard. And on the same day as FDA approval, we got Medicare coverage, which was the first device or diagnostic in history to get both on the same day. What year was this that you first got approval? That was 2014, August of oh. 2014. So five years after uh, you joined the company, um, you did what you said. So you're now you're ready with your first product on the market. Um, you you felt pretty good about your product profile, but of course, there's always going to be skeptics or people that want more data. What did they say? Well, I would say the vast majority of people thought nobody's going to do a stool test. They're not going to provide a stool sample into a container and then ship it by UPS. That was the consistent theme. I had all together, I, we stopped counting, my assistant June Fontana stopped counting at 6,000 investor meetings. Uh, and the general view was a blood test is going to beat this. There was a company out there, Epigenomics, which had a blood test. We had panel meetings on back-to-back with epigenomics and um most investors thought no no no, a blood test is going to beat a stool test and and we felt otherwise because we felt accuracy is um so important your test was reimbursed though straight out of the gate by cms and what was your initial price our initial price is pretty much the price that it is today today it's at 508 dollars. i think the initial pricing was 490 something and there's uh -huh. been one adjustment slight adjustment to that um in nine years and cms looked at that and and i mean did its own analysis and thought based on the data um that's something we can pay for they did so they did a deep analysis in parallel with fda they actually attended the panel meeting and uh, the chief medical officer and, and that team really deeply analyzed the data, the modeling around the what would, it, how would a test, how would Cologuard impact their population, and ultimately came to the conclusion that they should issue a national coverage decision. And so having that national coverage decision and then um, a few months later pricing allowed us to launch Cologuard start to get paid for it in the Medicare population, and then also convince commercial insurers to, to cover Colocard. Right, because a lot of these people are not the Medicare population, 50s, maybe even people in their 40s. Um, can you talk a little, so this is an important transition where you had to become a commercial company. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of companies don't successfully navigate this area. What did you do those first couple years to get Colocard off to a good start well we quickly shifted our whole mindset to um a commercial launch and manish grew up as a marketer got into life sciences at third wave and, and deeply studied that field and together we worked on developing a strategy to launch into primary care, which some people thought was a suicide mission because how in the world can a tiny little company with, I don't know, we had maybe $50 million uh, in, in capital at the time, bring a test to primary care healthcare providers. There are a million of them in the US. There, it, it would be incredibly difficult and we, hired 80 sales reps, which investors in diagnostics didn't really understand. You're, what? You're going to go into primary care? Isn't that a suicide mission? And you didn't have some big partner with some you know, big sales force to help you. You're on your own. No, we went to one of the large labs, I won't mention which one, um, and had a conversation with their head of commercial. And they said, hey, look, Kevin, we have... Um, 
We can be your partner, but just think about it this way. We'll probably give you about a third a four, on a per kit basis. We will give you a third of whatever you, you get reimbursed. So if you get reimbursed at $500, take a third of that. That's what we'll pay you. But we have 3,000, 4,000 different tests. We're not going to be able to promote your test above all those other tests. And we have 2,000 payers. So you're going to have to go negotiate with payers. You're going to have to uh, figure out a way to really still activate primary care physicians. And I left that meeting. And it was only 18 months before FDA approval. And I remember calling calling Manish and Graham uh, and saying, hey, uh, team, we need to start building a lab because there is no way to do a, a deal with one of the large lab providers. They're not, this is not their area of focus. They will take most of the economics and we will have, um, you know, over time, we will get ground down. Yeah, you'd be getting the short end of the stick after all of the effort you had done to develop this novel test. <laughs> you know what I'm so grateful for, Luke, is that the leader at that large lab was honest with me. Yeah. Just laid yeah. out, here are all of the challenges, and it didn't take him two or three weeks to come to the conclusion. Right there in that meeting, he said, here's the real deal. So eventually you came to this decision, we're going to do this ourselves and we're going to hire our own sales force. You start with 80 people and you're going to go after primary care. Um, <laughs> that's part of it. But you also, I, I think this is interesting too. You did a lot of advertising uh, in on social media, on uh, mainstream media. Uh, what were What was your thinking there? Well, we always knew that it would be the right thing to do because we saw... Um, Evan Jones, the CEO of Digene, made the decision to market the first HPV test uh, on radio in 12 major markets around the U.S. And in those markets, screening with the HPV test doubled in a matter of months. So that would have been in 2005 or 2006. So we we knew that there, there was a, a different way to do this. I remember uh, checking in with Evan getting his take, I think had dinner at JP Morgan. And he said, yeah, Kevin, it really does work. So we didn't think it made sense for us to do right out of the gates. And, and we, in September of 2015, I remember coming into Manisha's office and saying, hey, I think it's time that we explore this. And by January, we had our first commercial shot and we were running it, we decided to put $25 million. No, no, no. We decided to test it in five markets with five control markets. And in nine weeks, we were up 90%. We are up 10% over the five markets that were growing really quickly over the five control markets. And then we said, let's put $25 million onto cable television only cable television because the rates were about a third of what network TV. Was. Okay. Now, first you had established your credibility with the medical community, you know, getting your data published in the peer reviewed journals, like you're supposed to, the, the, the doctors who m might prescribe this thing um, were aware, a lot of them, maybe not all of them were aware of it. Uh, so you, you had that foundation of credibility, but with screening, with screening, you have to reach a very, very large population of the end user, the consumer, uh, and, and get them to start <laughs> asking their doctors. So that that's what you were trying to do at that next level. Yes. And, you know, going back to that 10,000 patient study we ran, it got published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Why? Because it was a, a tremendously well-designed, well-powered study. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's no, no shortcut. shortcut. <laughs> no shortcut. You, 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 That's exactly right. Dude. No shortcut. You you did the hard work, and then you uh, you know took it to Madison Avenue, so to speak, and 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 Cologuard became a well known brand. It is today. How many people have uh, have gotten a Cologuard test today? Today, about twelve million Cologuard tests. Now, many of them are repeat users. So over 10 million people have been screened. 
Wow. And so they're all doing this process. They're providing the stool sample, putting in a kit, sending it via UPS to um, Madison or to, to other places now as well. Madison, Wisconsin. We have two labs here in Madison. And, and to put it in perspective, it was in 2015, we performed 40,000 tests. In 2016, 100,000 tests. In 2016, 250,000 tests. Well, we will do 250,000 tests in a couple of weeks now. So this thing really has um, grown um, probably beyond your wildest dreams when you took this job uh, almost 15 years ago. <laughs> um, but you still have a long way to go. How, how big of, do you think the addressable market is here? Well, the addressable market in the U.S. is uh, 120 million Americans age 45 to 85. It's an enormous population. 60 million Americans in that age group are not up to date with screening. Yeah. Okay. But the success of this product has allowed you to build up all that infrastructure, grow your employee base, really dial in your processes. But then, you know, you've you've sought to grow other ways through acquisitions. And you mentioned the one earlier about genomic health. There's a couple important ones I want to ask you about. One here, genomic health, and it's Oncotype DX test. What was your thinking around acquiring that company? Uh, and and what, what what did that do to transform Exact? Well, our, our broader vision was and, and remains being able to help patients along every step of that, uh, what we would call the cancer continuum from knowing what their risk is, their hereditary uh, risk of cancer is, to screening tests, to tests that help guide therapy to finally test that detect recurrence. And so the, the whole idea is to detect cancer earlier when it's preventable. Our, our mission is to eradicate cancer through tests that help prevent it, detect it earlier, and guide treatment. And we had no access to the field of oncology because we were calling on primary care physicians. We just simply didn't know the oncology um, oncologists uh, around the country and the world. And that's where genomic health is awesome. They, because they like, like exact and developed a test that dramatically changed the standard of care. And they developed unbelievably rock solid evidence that made oncologists and surgeons change their view of how to treat a patient with early stage breast cancer. This test, for, for those not familiar, the Oncotype DX test uh, could tell whether a patient had, a, a newly diagnosed breast cancer patient uh, had a high likelihood of a recurrence after having it surgically removed and whether or not that patient was likely to benefit from a round of chemotherapy and, and whether you could avoid it. <laughs> so this is pretty, pretty valuable information for patients and physicians. Yes, a, a good friend of mine was diagnosed with breast cancer, early stage breast cancer last year. She got, uh, her name is Gay. She got a, um, a Oncotype DX test. The score came in below 26, which meant the benefit of chemotherapy was less than 1%. Right. So, so she in that case, decision not to, to, to not undergo uh, chemotherapy. And altogether, there have been a million women around the world who've been able, uh, patients, because men are, are diagnosed with breast cancer too, um, have been able to avoid chemotherapy. Conversely, if the score is above 26, you know what the likelihood is of benefiting from chemotherapy. And some of these small stage one or two term tumors, they look uh, not that um, aggressive, but if you appear into the genetic activity within those tumors, they are going to become really bad actors. And so those patients benefit from chemotherapy. And, and that's the power of Oncotype DX. And it's the power of, you know, the reason I was inspired to get in this field in the first place is the power of understanding the DNA behind disease. 
Now this deal also, so it strengthens your uh, scientific, your R&D base, or expands your uh, your capabilities. Also gives you a, a beachhead there in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, lots of talent there and, and people working on cool things. Um, the, the next thing you did was, the big acquisition was Thrive Earlier Detection. Uh, and here you have a blood test. What did you see there? Uh, and what intrigued you and how did that fit into exact sciences mission? Um, so what we saw with thrive was they were working in parallel with this, uh, at being able to detect most cancers with a simple blood test. And that was the second part of my conversation with Dave Alquist, Alquist in 2009 at the Mayo clinic was, Look, we've got to go after all these cancers because if if you screen a population, a person instead of individual organs, you there's more cumulative disease out there if you're screening across the deadliest cancers. Let's say the top 16 or 20 deadliest cancers. And we hit for a decade had been working on doing that with DNA methylation. Thrive was doing it. Um, in a very powerful way with DNA mutations. And and we thought we could combine those two to get to a better outcome, a more sensitive and more specific test. And that's the data that we've been able to generate together with the goal is, Luke, of let's screen entire populations around the globe with a simple blood draw that allows you to detect most cancers. The sample is really important here because, I mean, going back to your roots, uh, the stool sample for colorectal cancer, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but obviously, that's not going to detect a, a large majority of the cancers. So you have to start somewhere else with the blood and, and have a different detection method, as you say, with the, the DNA. That's exactly right. You want to be able to screen a whole population with a blood draw. and Grail had been, you know, very active at helping to bring this field alive and did a lot of the uh, early work, exciting work to show the promise. And with all of the special people involved in getting that company off the ground, it, it generated a lot of awareness of the power of what we call multi-cancer early detection testing. And uh, now, um, you know, we're actually collaborating with Grail to try to activate Congress to pass a law that will allow Medicare to issue a national coverage decision if Medicare chooses to do so. This really dovetails into my next question, which is where do you think cancer diagnostics is going uh, a decade from now? Do you think that these are going to become these these blood based screening tests for multiple tumor types is going to be? like a part of your routine checkup from age 45 and beyond. And we're, we're going to like live in a world where we catch cancer much earlier. Yes, absolutely. I think that the biggest impact on in oncology is going to be a stage shift to earlier detection, just like with the pap smear moving earlier detection ended up taking that mortality curve and, you know, eliminating more than 75% of cancer mortalities by screening for the early problem. We're going to see that um, across many, if not most, cancer types. And it, so it's a, a really exciting time. There are huge challenges to make this a reality, starting with the science and moving to getting Medicare coverage and reimbursement in place and commercial insurers to cover and guidelines to look at this new screening modality and give it a fair shake. I was just going to say, Kevin, you know, diagnostics is such a hard business for some of those reasons, gathering the convincing data and then convincing the payers to reimburse uh, uh, the amount you need. Um, we, we have very high expectations for diagnostic tests generally and are just not willing to pay a whole lot for them. Do you, do you see something changing there? You know, uh, Dave Alquis who had these really simple, clear ways about thinking about things, he said, hard is no reason to not try. And eventually it's the data that will win the day. The data 
around screening a massive population already has shown what some of the work that Grail has done, the detect a study that thrive ran showed that with the original version of the thrive test mutate DNA mutations only and, and proteins were able to double the number of screen detected cancers in a population of 10,000 people in the Geisinger system. Double the number of screen detected. Two-thirds of those cancers were early stage. Those early stage uh, cancer patients are all still alive. And uh, the the 1% of patients that had a false positive, um, only two out of 100 of them have um, had cancer developed in in the subsequent three years. So a negative test result really means uh, that a, um, or a, a positive test result in a patient has a negative PET scan means most likely they don't have cancer. It's the evidence is being developed and that's gonna win the day with the payers. And most importantly, the clinicians that form the guideline groups. Yeah, you know, the old saying, Knowledge has power, and that this information, if it's gathered properly um, and thoroughly vetted, <laughs> um, has tremendous value for, for guiding people's decisions. Um, but it, it, it's hard, but you sound like you really relish it. <laughs> what, you're, you're an optimistic guy. Uh, Kevin, last thing I want to ask you, what, what keeps you going and, and helps you stay uh, optimistic about what you do? I think you, when you see the impact that you have and people share their stories with you that they were diagnosed with stage one colon cancer, they didn't have to undergo chemotherapy because of the innovation of, of Graham Lidgard, Dave Alquist, Manish, uh, the team. When you hear from friends who have been diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. I had a, a, a dear friend diagnosed stage one breast cancer and she had surgery this week. Um, and, and knowing that she's gonna benefit from a, an oncotype test. Well, okay, those were really hard. It's taken 20 years to make oncotype DX, DX the, the standard of care. 90% of um, patients who should get it, get it in the US, um, get the oncotype test. It's, you know, it's, you know, these things take time, but it's kind of like the name of your show in the long run, the effort, the science, the team, you, you'll get it right. And so, yeah, diagnostics is hard. The rewards are worth it. That's a great place to, uh, wrap up. Thank you so much for joining me. Kevin Conroy on the long run. Luke, you're a good man. And thank you for all that you do in your fight against cancer. And I see now your fight against poverty. You are a special individual in our field and we're lucky to have you. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.